be full of fright. I grant that I was with the devil below in his great big fiery hall, where the devil was giving a ball. I checked my coat and hat and started gazing at the merry crowd who came to witness the show, and I must confess to you, there were many there I knew. Hello. Hi. At the devil's ball. At the devil's ball. Before we get to our ongoing attention deficit disorder inferno, we've got a guest. Dr. Brian Brazio gave us a call from England to talk about, among other things, the structure and metaphysics of Dante's Hell. Brian unpacked some really interesting aspects of Dante, and I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Well, joining me today is Dr. Brian Brazo, Associate Professor of Liberal Arts at the University of Warwick in England. And uh, thank you so much for joining us here on the Sixth Circle. And thanks for having me. So just beginning questions, what brought you to Dante originally? I mean, originally, I did my undergraduate in uh, in liberal arts as well at Concordia in Montreal and oh. read Dante in my first year because it was sort of a great books program and really just loved it. You know, I think the teacher was really dynamic. I found it really fascinating. And I kind of said to myself, you know what, this looks really cool. And I really love the sound of the Italian and the poetry. And I finally said to myself, you know what, I'm going to learn Italian so I can read this in the original. So I took Italian classes for, you know, two, three years until I finally could read Dante in the original before I finished my undergrad. Um, I was the annoying kid in all those language classes where, you know, the, the poor teachers are trying to say, like, here's how you say, where is the airport? Here's how you say, where is the bathroom? And I'm like, hey, how do we say, you know, what's the subjunctive imperfect of this? And how is Dante? <laughs> and they're like, oh, my God, this kid. I never since then I was I was hooked. You know, I love Dante. I ended up going and doing a master's and PhD in Italian studies at NYU, not specifically in Dante. I was also really interested in Renaissance poetry, and that's also something I work on. But Dante was always sort of a love that sort of remained there. So when I was, you know, in grad school, I took some Dante seminars with John Forchero, which was amazing, with Maria Luisa Ardizzone, who's done tons of amazing work on Dante and philosophy, um, ended up publishing something in an edited collection that she put together on Cesare Brabant and Paradiso, I think it's Paradiso 10 or Paradiso 13. <clears throat> and really thinking about, you know, Dante's relationship with all kinds of different types of heterodox philosophy, theology, you know, and just recognizing that Dante is is amazing. You know, as Boccaccio said, the Divine Comedy is one of these texts where a mouse can touch the bottom and an elephant can swim. Um, and I think for me, that's one thing I always really liked about Dante. You know, being a first-gen college student, I really love this idea that you can have a text that anyone can get something out of. It doesn't matter if you've never heard of Dante before. It doesn't matter if you've been studying him for 15 years. You know, there's always something there for everyone. And I really love that about him. Is Dante kind of a universal academic trade language or is there differences in the saturation of Dante's scholarship since you've been on a few different continents here? Um, there's all kinds of different types of, you know, Dante scholarship. I mean, the American Dante scholarship often focuses very much on, uh, you know, sort of more kind of literary things, especially um, sort of literary theory, which is some of the scholarship that, you know, came out of Yale. There's other types of, you know, there's all kinds of different types of Dante scholars. There's some excellent work being done on Dante and cannibalism in the U.S., um, you know, Dante and gender. I think, what's her name? Laura Ingalinella is doing a really wonderful project on the women um, that aren't talked about very much in Dante and the Divine Comedy, etc. Um, and then if you come over to Europe, you've got all kinds of other types of, you know, Dante scholarship here. Uh, someone like Simon Gilson, who's at Oxford, does amazing work on the reception of Dante. So, you know, how is Dante read in 15th and 16th century Italy? Did you say Dante and cannibalism back then a few moments ago? That's right. Dante and cannibalism. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I did hear that correctly. Okay. Yep. 
there's all kinds of really interesting new approaches being taken to Dante. Um, you know, I just saw recently in my email, um, November 12th and 13th, there's these sort of, you know, Dante conference days because it's the anniversary uh, right. at Oxford Cambridge where people are presenting all kinds of amazing papers, stuff on Dante, Rilke, um, and, you know, thinking about transgender, Dante and the environment, reading Dante as a kind of meditative text. So, and I think for me, that's one of the things I love about Dante is this is a text that's at least 700 years old and we're still finding new things to say about it. Have you done any recent work with him? Um, recent work with Dante. I mean, I teach Dante a lot. Oh, well, yes. um, in terms of in terms of work, I mean, you know, I've been batting around the idea for a while of writing a book on Dante and Tasso. Uh, Tasso is not so well known to the English speaking world, but he writes Jerusalem, the Liberation of Jerusalem, or Jerusalem Delivered. It's a poem about the Crusades that Freud really liked, and it's all about how you know we're all just broken and messed up and everything else. Uh, but Tasso is really inspired by Dante in so many ways, and that's something I've been batting around for a while. So when I finally have some time, I really hope to be able to, you know, sit down and kind of work on that in depth. Um, I've also been doing a bit of work on uh, sort of one of Dante's really, really key interlocutors, who's St. Augustine. I led a reading group on City of God two years ago, where we went through the whole thing cover to cover, which was wild. Um, and Ooh. that's another sort of avenue I'm hoping to pursue is looking more at, you know, the influence of Augustine on Dante. I feel like you need to read uh, St. Augustine with friends, like that would really help the experience of bit. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there's a lot of really good introductions to, to Augustine. You know, I think it's the kind of thing where people will look at him and go, oh, how can I get my head around this medieval theology? Um, you know, there's a great book by James K.A. Smith, who's at, uh, where is he? I think he's at Calvin College. Um, it's called On the Road with St. Augustine. And it's it's fantastic. I mean, he looks at Augustine's influence on existentialists, on Hannah Arendt, um, and really just, you know, how can we think about Augustine as providing kind of philosophy that works for us now in a postmodern modern age. And it's really, really great. And he has a lot to say about, I think, infernology and damnation as well, which is our topic of interest. So I'm, quote, looking forward to him, unquote, soon. <laughs> <laughs> great. So today we were going to talk about the sort of structure of Dante's hell. I want to call it Dante's infernology, but that's sort of redundant. That's all right. Where's a good place to begin that discussion? I mean, I would say probably Canto 11, really. Um, Canto 11 is where Dante and Virgil are, you know, sort of waiting at the upper bit of no. the upper bit of hell, uh, you know, and Virgil says, hey, wait, we have to stop for a bit because the stench is so bad. We have to get used to this. And all of a sudden, you know, they have some time to fill and yeah. Virgil starts to answer Dante's questions, um, which is really interesting because many people, when they read Inferno, tend to think, oh, you know, this whole structure, this must be somewhere in the Bible. You know, I still haven't found it. <laughs> if it is there, I don't know where no, it is. No, 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 no. Um, and what's fascinating about it is really, you know, the way that Dante is building his hell is this really interesting combination of classical sources, medieval sources. I mean, it's just really interesting to see how all these things come together. So I think you really start to see one of the key principles of the structure of Dante's hell, you know, throughout 11, uh, where Virgil answers a few questions from Dante. And I have some lines that I can quote there. And what's interesting is, you know, Dante separates, I mean, I'm sure you've already covered this on the podcast, but Dante separates hell into upper hell which is, you know, ruled by incontinence. Um, and it's not the kind of incontinence that you need depends for. Um, it's, you know, incontinence like acrasia, the sense of, you know, why is it that we do the wrong thing, even though, even though we know what the good is and we still don't do it. And lower hell is characterized by malice, right? Where you have violence and fraud. But what's interesting too, is that to make sense of 11, you also have to look at 34, which, which, which is, you know, the canto where we have Satan. Um, and this idea that Satan's fall from heaven 
um, is actually what creates hell. When Satan falls out of heaven, you know, with all the other rebel angels, he doesn't just land on a lake of fire like he does in Milton. We yeah. find out almost at the end of 24 that he falls and the earth just opens up underneath him and is like, no, 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 I don't want this, right? It's an impact crater almost. Exactly, exactly. But what's cool about that impact crater is that that impact crater creates something on the other side of the earth, which is the mountain of purgatory and the earthly paradise. That so was something I was wondering. So is this kind of a f almost a flat earth or something? I was wondering how, how the symmetry of the cone shape of hell and Satan's butthole, and then what's on the other side? Like, what is the shape of that? I mean, I hesitate to say that Dante thought the earth was round, but you know, the, the idea of a round earth was not anything new. Um, no. You know, the idea of a round earth goes all the way back to Ptolemy. So I think when Dante's thinking of this, he's thinking of a sphere um, and he's thinking of this idea of Satan falling, creating this big concave funnel in a sense and being fixed at the center of the earth. Mm -hmm. And then this mountain that equally rises on the other side. Um, if people are interested in this, George Corbett has a really good article in, I think it's in the new, it's either in the Cambridge Companion to Dante or in the new Oxford Handbook to Dante, which is great. Um, and he talks about you know the moral structure of hell and he points out how you know satan's fall creates this really interesting parallelism between the circles we get in inferno and the circles we get in purgatory where there's almost like a one-to-one -one matching you know um it's also this really interesting economy where satan's fall out of heaven the creation of hell also is the creation of salvation right it's the creation it leads to the creation of humanity in the earthly paradise it leads to this idea of purgatory where you can kind of you know work your way up slowly um, and there's something really interesting about that really interesting about that kind of mirroring there so the the layers then if i'm imagining this and remembering my own like medieval studies we have sort of this figure eight double funnel thing of inferno and purgatorio and then kind of echoing out from that around the earth is the shells of the celestial spheres that are paradiso so both are kind of hugged by the spheres yeah, exactly. I mean, the way I always explain this to students is, you know, if you can think of like, uh, you know, an everlasting gobstopper or something like that, that's sort of the model of the spheres and the kind of Ptolemaic universe, right? This idea of, you know, you have all these sort of round spheres, but it is really interesting how at the absolute center of all of that is, you know, the earthly paradise. Um, I won't go into that too much here because we're talking about the structure of hell, but everything sort of links up. And this also links up with, you know, in Dante studies, um, I don't know if you guys have covered this, but one of the really popular sort of recent ways to read Dante is vertical readings where people will look at Inferno 6, uh, Purgatory 6, and Paradiso 6 or oh, 777. Hypertext reading here. Yeah. And that's really cool because all of a sudden you've got, you know, these different contos coming together in really interesting ways where you're like, oh, wow, all of these are political or all of these relate to this theme. Um, you know, people are like, did Dante intend that? I mean... Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> it's a great way to read the comedy. But I think getting back to the structure of hell, once we think about this physical creation, a lot of people wonder why on earth are certain sinners punished? Like this doesn't make sense. Why are sinners punished? Why is it that Dante has to, you know, understand, um, you know, these punishments and understand who to be angry against. Um, and that starts to make sense. If you look in Canto 11, where, you know, he asks, he says, well, look, Virgil, why is usury punished? Um, and I'll, I'll share with you, there's a really, really great translation. I don't know if you've seen the recent, uh, well, recent 2010 translation by Sandow Burke and Marcus Sanders. Yes, I was watching that last night, actually, the, yes. the movie version. It's a lot of fun. It's really great. And in, in scene 11, Virgil gives Dante a couple of coins to use one of those old school uh, viewfinders to kind of look over the inner levels of hell and the bulges and such. It's a really cool scene. 
Yeah, no, I think it's it's fantastic. And I think what's great is they did a whole line by line translation of the Divine Comedy. Yes. Uh, so you can actually pick up the books. And I think they're great because it really kind of opens up, um, you know, some of this language. So the more traditional translation would go, you know, philosophy. So Dante says, look, Virgil, I don't get it. Like, why is usury punished? What's so wrong with making money on money? You know, and, you know, the traditional line of that is, you know, philosophy for one who understands her observes and not in one place only, yada, yada, yada. Um, but I think, you know, the way that it's conveyed here, this sort of more modern one is uh, Virgil said, or Dante says to Virgil, wait, back up a second. I still don't get why guys who lend money to other people are treated so bad. One of the things that philosophy is good for, he said, if you can understand it, is that it helps to explain how nature comes from both God's will and from God's art. And if you go back and read Aristotle's physics again, you'll see that there's an explanation about how art follows nature, like a dog chases a ball. If that's true, then you could say your art is like a grandchild of God. Yes. Right. And that's really interesting because that idea of art as God's grandchild you know, kind of underlies this whole idea of the divine comedy, right? This idea that nature is not just there, but nature in a sense imitates God. And this has to do with some, you know, Neoplatonic theology, but these ideas, this idea that the principles that we have in nature are actually imitating ideas that exist within the mind of God. And therefore, when you're making any kind of art, you're imitating nature, right? You go back to Aristotle's poetics, you're imitating nature. So art becomes the grandchild of the divine. Art has this sort of magical divine aspect to it. There's something about making, there's something about imitation that's really, really important, right? That really matters. Um, but what's interesting about this, the reason I bring this up is because Virgil's bringing up Aristotle's physics. And it's a bit weird that he's talking about Aristotle's physics and not Aristotle's poetics. Now, we know that Dante probably didn't have direct access to the poetics. He would have maybe seen some, you know, Arabic commentaries. But the reason why he's talking about Aristotle's physics only makes sense if we understand that Aristotle's physics for Dante is partially mediated by someone like St. Augustine, right? And this is really, really interesting because in the Confessions, you know, and this is Augustine's autobiography where he says, you know, it's all about his conversion and everything. But the, la the late chapters of the Confessions, really, Augustine has all these really interesting reflections on selfhood and time and memory and all this other stuff. And the Confessions, really, Augustine's trying to point out that all our hearts are restless until they rest in God. And in Confessions 13.10, he talks about, you know, the different elements in the world. So he says, you know, look, a material object moves towards where its own weight wants to take it. So the if great, you mix the great, chain of, water, the great chain of being sort of thing. Exactly. Exactly. You, you mix, you know, oil and water, shake it up. All of a sudden the oil will rise, et cetera. Well, where does your love take you, right? What's the weight of love? It sounds like a kind of like Hallmark movie. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you get this line from Augustine, my love is my weight. I'm carried by it wherever I'm carried. This is, you know, the idea of the pond to Samoris, the sort of the weight of love. Through your gift, we catch fire. You're directed to where your love brings you, right? And once we think, oh, wait a minute, Dante, when he's talking about Aristotle's physics here, he's not just talking about, you know, the physics and, you know, physics and imitation. He's also talking about physics as mediated through Augustine, which has to do with this idea that your will leads you to where you end up going. So it's not just that you get Minos as this bureaucrat who's like, all right, tail wraps around you three times, circle number three. Um, but what you actually get is this idea that the sinners in hell are there because they want to be there. They're there because their wills are actually bringing 
them to that place. And it's almost like thinking of a kind of moral gravity, right? So if we think about gravity the way we think about gravity, um, if you imagine that that gravity has a moral valence to it in the cosmos, then you can all of a sudden understand where the sinners go in Dante's hell and why they're there and they're going to stay there because their wills bring them to this point where their will can no longer be reformed. If it could be, they'd be in purgatory, right? With their will slowly bringing them upward and slowly reorienting their loves in an Augustinian sense. But in Dante's hell, those sinners are there because they've fallen there. That's why Satan is so big and so heavy and so massive because, you know, his love is this love of betrayal, this love of everything that's the furthest from the idea of God. So that's why he sinks all the way to the bottom. And that's kind of a, a question that I have to deal with when reading the Inferno is, are the sinners there of their own choice? Are the sinners able to redeem? And it sounds like it's almost a non-question. They are there on this side of the purgatory gate because the nature of who they are does not allow them to redeem themselves. Yeah, exactly. And it's also this sense that within a universe that's sort of governed by God, right? If God is just, this idea of justice would be, look, you have free will. Your will can lead you wherever you want. Um, But if your will leads you to hell, the sinners are weirdly there by their own choice. And they remain there by their own choice in a sense. And it's the type of thing where their wills can't be reformed anymore by that point, right? There's no hope for them in a way. And that's where we get that kind of idea of abandon all hope because there's no hope for change. Um, And I think this is really interesting because when you think about it, it's rebelling against that. And it's hard for us as moderns to sometimes look at that and go like, well, wait, how is this fair? You know, these sinners are being punished. This doesn't seem like a fair code, you know, but in a sense, being angry at that code or saying the code is unfair is the equivalent of that Simpsons meme where you have, you know, Abe Simpson shaking his fist. And it's like <laughs> old man yells at cloud. Um, and again, Fracero has a great essay on this on which he calls infernal irony, right? Where there's a lot of irony in Inferno. And the irony is the fact that the characters are saying things that we go, yeah, that's so true, et cetera. But they're caught within this system where we know that the place that they're in means they're already condemned. Um, and this is really interesting when we see characters in Inferno who are really appealing to us, right? Take you Ulysses in Canto 26, we go, oh yeah, this is great. You know, like, I mean, minus all the colonialism stuff, but this idea of like, let's explore, let's go beyond, you know, um, you know, Ulysses is maybe looking forward to, you know, the Elon Musks of the world. And we're like, yeah, individualism. But at the same time, we also have to think of where they're positioned within Inferno and why they're there and how that creates that really interesting tension that Dante himself and the reader has to come to understand, even though you might sympathize with them in the grand scheme of things, gravity's brought them to this point and therefore they're wrong. (laughs) And kind of the flip side of that is Virgil kind of encouraging Dante towards being a, what on the surface seems like a fairly dark character. Like the deeper Dante goes into the inferno, the less I want to like him (laughs) because of the empathy issue. That's a great point, right? I mean, I think the empathy issue for us as moderns, we're like, dude, why are you kicking someone who's, you know, struggling and, you know, boiling pitch? That's not really nice. Um, But at the same time, for Dante and for a medieval thinker, especially if you're thinking of this along Augustinian lines, it's about a reordering of your loves, right? It's about a reordering of what you love and what you hate. It's about yeah. a reordering of what, what you should be angry at, right? Dante is not a pacifist. Dante is not saying, oh, never be angry. You know, neither is Augustine. It's like, look, be angry, but your anger and your loves should match you know, theoretically, what God, you know, God has ordained in a sense for the 
proper order of the human soul, if you want. Um, and I think that's the really difficult thing for us as moderns to see, because we read this and we go, oh my gosh, poor Francesca, you know, oh, it's so unfair what happened to her. Oh, look at Ulysses. He's so great. And in a sense, it's almost showing us, you know, how fallen we are, in a way, you know, when we're looking at this. Uh, but it's hard because, you know, as, as you say, the more Dante progresses, the less you kind of want to like him. Yeah. Um, but it's also because he's progressing away from this sort of midlife crisis that we're so familiar with, right? The beginning is really like, what am I doing in the middle of my life? Um, and turning into a judgmental older guy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. I mean, maybe this is how we all get out of our midlife crises is just, you know, you face all the demons inside, then you become judgmental and you just go on with life. It's <laughs> like that. So there's a break and I'm thinking of it as the, the Gurion break where up above, it feels like we're dealing with a more classical hell and below it feels like it's more of the medieval Christian hell. Is, is that is that fair? Like the classical elements seem to fade over time. I think you get a bit of both um, because, you know, you do have some, you do have some classical elements, even at the center of hell, right? With the idea of Satan, you know, munching on two, two, two of the people Satan's munching on assassinated Caesar. Um, so there's this sense sure. of like, well, you know, uh, but I think you're right that once Dante really gets down into lower hell, there's really this sense of, okay, we're departing from some of these classical elements, but it's also because I think simultaneously, Dante is finding his own voice, right? And this is one thing that I think often gets lost when people read Inferno is that it's meant to be on the one hand, a poem that's almost like, you know, a building's romance. It's about how Dante, the, you know, midlife crisis guy, this pilgrim lost in the middle of the woods, figures out who he is, figures out what he's supposed to do in life, figures out what he's here for. And what he's here for is to write the very poem that we're reading. So as we read this and Dante goes down, Dante's own art form, his own, you know, artistic prowess gets better and better and better. Uh -huh. You see in Purgatorio, where there's a lot of discussion about art and, you know, what they call a visibile parlare, this idea of, you know, things that can speak, um, you know, art that you look at and that speaks to you. But Dante is also worried about this, right? You have this bit where Ulysses in 26 doesn't happen just anywhere. Ulysses in 26 happens right after we get that really, really amazing transformation of, I think it's the thieves into the snakes and back again. It's this really beautifully written transformation. And Ulysses is this cautionary tale of like, hey, don't go too far. And this is one thing Dante's art always struggles with is how much can he develop himself as an artist without being blasphemous, without going too far. And one of the really interesting things, and you know, Dante scholarship has always argued about this is, does Dante write as God writes, right? This whole idea of the allegory of the theologians versus the allegory of the poets. If Dante's writing as God writes, I mean, that's a ballsy move, um, especially in the Middle Ages. And, you know, he needs to, meet, to be careful that his pride and his own, you know, development of his artistic talent is not going beyond the boundaries prescribed by God for human talent, human achievement. Um, and that's one thing that he always struggles with throughout. And there's always this possibility that, oh, he might fall back. In terms of structural elements and kind of physicality of hell, we are, of course, very interested in the city of Dis. I just think that's a neat landmark. And kind of the imagery of it in, in that moment is, is really imposing and intimidating. Do you have anything to say about kind of that transitional moment? Yeah, I mean, the city of Dis, you're talking about when he comes in and uh, there's um, the Gorgons there. and yeah. Oh, yeah, there's a big musical number. Yeah, there is. There is. Um, I mean, the city of Dis is really interesting and problematic too, right? Because Dante, when he sees it from far away, it's like, oh, it was covered with red mosques and minarets. And you're like, oh, dude. Well, there's uh, that. 
Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, as he approaches the city of Dis, the city of Dis isn't new in Dante. I mean, Virgil has it in the Aeneid, right? This idea of a sort of city in the underworld. Yeah. Um, yeah and I mean, I'm sure we can think of whatever city we hate uh, and be like, yeah, it's just like the city of Dis. But I think that moment of entry there is meant to show on the one hand that Dante the pilgrim, the character is actually fated to get into hell. Um, but it's also this really interesting bit where it's like, ah, if you're a smart reader, you will be able to look here. And, you know, people then like dig and dig and dig. Um, it's a bit like what Joyce does in Ulysses, where he's like, oh, I'm going to do something for the scholars to work on for the rest of their careers here. <laughs> um, you know, but I think what's interesting about that moment is that Dante, you know, that gate is being shattered and it's being shattered by some sort of divine messenger that's saying, hey, Dante is fated to be here. On the one hand, Dante is doing something here that's very different from what we see in the Aeneid. So if you look at, you know, the underworld in Aeneid 6, one of the really fascinating things about this is we don't know at the end of the day whether Aeneas was supposed to go down to the underworld or not, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, the he kind of backs off. Yeah, well, it's also the golden bough doesn't just come off the tree. He has to break it off. And you're like, oh, that's a bit weird. Um, and then when they exit at the end, they exit through the gate of false dreams. So you're like, wait, you've just gotten all this Roman propaganda. huh? I mean, that's one thing that makes Virgil so interesting. And Dante here on the one hand is trying to be like, no, no, look, I am fated to do this. This was willed by God. You know, don't just don't, you know, there's gonna be no doubt about that. But what I think is also going on here is an echoing of the harrowing of hell. Right. And we see yes. this throughout, throughout the Divine Comedy, these bits where Dante is like, hey, that gate is sort of broken down. That wall is broken. Who was here before me? And obviously it's Jesus, right? Because Dante was familiar with the Gospel of Nicodemus, which is, you know, Jesus's descent into hell where he, you know, beats up these demons and ties up Satan. And the battle think, sequence. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and really funny dialogue between Satan and Hades. Where he's, yeah, they, was it flighting, they call it. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the things with Dante is that it's very easy to read Dante and go, oh, clearly it's, you know, classical sources plus the Bible. But in a sense, almost every source Dante uses, he's transforming, right? He's transforming, he's fusing into this narrative that is fundamentally just Dantean, um, you know, where he's not just saying, oh, I'm just going to use this, this idea. He's using it, he's transforming it, and he's putting it within this system, right? I mean, you can think of the Divine Comedy almost as a type of cathedral that has its own internal logic to it. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think that that's one thing that I find amazing is this ability to just use sources from so many different backgrounds, um, including sources from, you know, Islamic commentators like, uh, you know, Averroes, Avicenna, um, you know, Dante's probably looking at them or he's aware of them and he's incorporating some of this into um, into bits where we even have some of this in like Paradiso and some of these theological bits where you're like, wait, what are you doing? You know, um, and I think that's one thing that can really get lost on us as moderns is just how original Dante was at the time um, and how what he's doing is really this amazing fusion of not just all kinds of different sources, but all kinds of different art forms, right? This idea of it's not just poetry, it's, you know, narrative, it's not just epic, it's also, you know, uh, depictions of artworks, it's all these ecstasies that we get. Um, it's an encyclopedia, it's a story, it's a poem, it's, you know, it's literally every discipline under the sun um, fused into this thing. And for me, I think, again, that's one of the things that got me really interested in Dante is this idea of, you know, poetry is not just something nice and fun that we do, but poetry is the ultimate way of conveying knowledge, right? Poetry in and of itself as a way of thinking, as a discipline, if that makes sense. I think one of my favorite bits in the Divine Comedy is, it's not really an inferno, uh, but it does have to do with Virgil, and it has to do with why Virgil's not in, not allowed into the earthly paradise in the end, right? And I think the castle... Harsh. Yeah, totally harsh. Um, but again, if we're interpreting it as harsh, Dante would say, well, you just don't understand yet 
why Virgil's not allowed in, right? It's it's tragic. I mean, the way it's depicted, Statius is like, you converted me to Christianity. Virgil's like, well, back to the crappy castle of limbo I go with its, you know, <laughs> yafty hallways and no lighting. Um, you know, but I think one of the interesting things is in that goodbye to Virgil, Dante doesn't say goodbye to Virgil until he's good and ready. And that's why he has, you know, those huh. those exams there in Purgatorio, which I always compare to, you know, if you do a graduate degree, it's like your comp exams or your, you know, PhD defense. Where it's right. like, okay, Dante, you ready to go to paradise? Um, you know, uh, and I think the most amazing thing for me, though, is the depiction of Beatrice. You know, we've, we've been there. We've been through Inferno. We've been back up. You know, Dante's been going through all this stuff. Finally, he's going to see her, you know, and if you're writing this kind of type of thing where you're the main character in your own story and you're finally meeting, you know, your girlfriend that you've been in love with for whatever, 30 some odd years. Um, you'd think that it would be, you know, sparks fly, you know, nice eighties movie moment. But I think one of the most amazing things is how Dante completely resists that. And Beatrice is really like, you know, he's crying because Virgil's gone and he turns around and Beatrice is like, look, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about, uh, which is one of my favorite moments in the divine comedy. Um, you know, Beatrice takes no prisoners. She's just like, no, this is the way that things are going to happen. Um, so I think that's really interesting. I also think, you know, thinking about the structure of hell, it's very easy, I think, for us to get um, caught up in a lot of little details and be like, why is this? Why is this? Some Dante scholars don't know. You know, there are certain things in, you know, in Dante that some people have some explanations of, but they're not great explanations and people are still trying to figure them out. Um, but I think the richness of it is really what what matters, you know. What would you say is one of the bigger Dante um, unsolved mystery sort of things? Um, I mean, some of the words that people use in Inferno, right? I mean, there's that bit where you get the demon who says, you know, uh, Pape Satan, Pape Satan Alepe. And you're like, wait, what is, is this Aramaic? Is this, and people have debated that forever. Um, another one of the big debates that's still going on is this whole idea of the allegory of theologians versus the allegory of the poets, right? Did Dante actually think that he had a divine vision, um, you know, Easter week, uh, 1300, or is this just sort of something that he made up uh, for a kind of, you know, narrative frame? And that completely changes the way we interpret the poem, right? If he's like, no, this was a divine vision and I was willed to do this and be this poet that, you know, is going to write this. It completely changes tons of stuff about the poem itself and the way that Dante understands kind of, you know, scripture foreshadowing different things. Um, of course, he's then writing himself into scriptural history, which is interesting. But yeah, there's all kinds of open questions. Sin of pride is not actually in that structure. We know that. <laughs> I mean, pride's interesting because pride's in purgatory, right? There is the bit in purgatory where, I mean, purgatory is really interesting after Inferno. No one, no one reads purgatory, um, but people True. should because purgatory literally is the inverse of Inferno. We were like, well, pride's not really here. No, but pride's there in purgatory. And when Dante gets on the terrace ah. of pride, he goes, eh, after I die, I'm going to have to spend some time here, aren't I? <laughs> you know? um, and it's interesting how these different sins are sort of purified or how people work their way through that. Um, you know, and one way they work their way through it is through community, is through the idea of, you know, singing songs together, is through the kind of regular rhythms of day and night, and through the regular rhythms of the liturgy. There's a new book that came out, I think just maybe a year ago or very recently by Matthew Traherne um, that looks at liturgy in the Divine Comedy. And I know we hear liturgy and we go, oh, this is so boring. But for Dante and for a medieval reader, it was really important, right? And the sense of community, the sense of rhythm, um, the sense of having different songs you sing at different times of the day and a sort of organized type of worship, in a sense, doing those things organizes the soul. Right. And I think that's one of the interesting things to think about if we think about the chaos that happens in Inferno and that sort of, you know, darkness and night versus the diurnal, you know, day night we get in purgatory. So do you have any uh, current projects that you're working on that we might be interested in? 
Current projects I'm working on. Um, yeah, all kinds of stuff. Um, like I said, I mean, I think for me, I really eventually want to write a book on Dante and Tasso. That's really what I want to look at um, because Dante has such an interesting influence, uh, particularly in Italian literature, that really hasn't been recognized that much. You know, he's not really taken up as an example of r- good writing because his writing is, you know, used too many swear words, it used too many, you know, dialectical words. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing I'm really interest, interested in working on at some point. You know, and again, Dante and Augustine is something I'd like to work on more. There's been some good good work already done on that, especially on semiotics. But that's something I kind of want to dig out a little bit more. And yeah, I mean, you know, my contract's a teaching contract, so I'm teaching most of the time, <laughs> but trying to get my hand in research and doing all kinds of different little things here and there. So where can people find you on the internets? So if people uh, just type in my name to Google, uh, Brian Brazo, they'll find my staff page at Warwick. Um, I'm always happy to reach out to anyone who's interested. If you're interested in talking about Dante, thinking about Dante, or interested in anything else I do, uh, you know, feel free to reach out. I mean, I teach classes on underworlds. I teach classes on paradises. I have a class on sustainability in modern Venice. I teach a class on the hero's journey and ripping it apart. Uh, I teach another class on exile and homecoming. So you name it, um, you know, I'm interested in it probably. Uh, so please do feel free. If, if you hear this and you want to have a chat or you want to think a little bit more together, please feel free to reach out. I think we might need to ask you some questions when we get to some of the more challenging underworlds. We're all afraid of uh, Persia and Islam in terms of taking that apart. And uh, I could use some support there. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I mean, I can't promise to be a complete expert on those, but I can try. One of the really interesting things that I learned recently um, in doing some research from underworlds class is that Dante's idea of the mountain of purgatory, which really gets codified in Dante, seems to come from Islamic ideas of paradise, this idea of a kind of terraced mountain. Um, Yeah, I've seen the visuals. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a lot of fun and we will, um, I guess, keep in touch over the over the month. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And yeah, I mean, if you know, if you have the link to this at any point when it goes up, just, you know, let me know. Uh, But thanks so much for having me. This has been great. Will do. Okay, take care, sir. Thanks again. Thanks so much. Bye bye now. Bye bye. Welcome to the Dispatchist, a friendly conversation about Dante and some other stuff. This is episode 29. We think. Yeah, no, we're pretty sure of it. This is episode 29. Yay! <laughs> let's, let's be certain about it. Let's lean in to 29. Pretty confident in this. Mm-hmm. As per always, I'm Jacob. As per always, I'm Victoria. Most of the time, I'm Jamin. <laughs> sometimes, I'm Jamin. It's true, sometimes she is. It only happened that one time. I mean, it was confusing. And now I think of Victoria as having this luxurious beard. Yeah, I missed that. I really, I missed the beard. <laughs> the, the dwarven look worked for you. It really did. Did you make a joke about babies and purses? I did. I did make a joke about babies and purses because uh, I wasn't sure where to put the babies when they were unbaptized. So I said, put them in purses. Right. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah. this word, Malbog? It kind of is. It, it's translated as variously purses and ditches and ravines and pits. I like the word ho-ho. <laughs> ho ho! Are you thinking haha? I am thinking haha. Yes, haha. Yeah, I like hahas too. It's so that you can see the sheep, but they can't get to you. Yeah, haha is like a trench in British landscape that the working class can go along, so your beautiful vista is not broken. Imagine if you have a house on a hill, mm-hmm. and then the lawn is sloping down, and then there's a sudden drop, and the lawn continues to slope down. Right. So if okay. you're on the house looking out, you can't see the drop. So that there's a path there, and like the sheep can't climb up the wall and get up yeah. onto your lawn. And, and you can't see the working class. It's great. Right, because they walk 
along the wall and you can't see them. I don't know if I believe you. It's true. Uh, H-A-H-A landscaped. H, okay. Well, uh, hmm. Okay. Oh, it's a ha hyphen ha. The hyphen is a new innovation, honestly. Well, I've just learned something new here today. <laughs> I also just like it's a ha-ha landscape. Ha-ha-ha landscape. Besides useless trivia, did anything... Besides useless trivia, did anybody bring anything to the party? I did. I brought a drink called the New Pope. Oh, I like it. Yeah. So, kind of fits in with the theme. It is... Three and a half ounces of gin, a half ounce of maraschino liqueur, half an ounce of Pernod, orange bitters, and an orange twist to garnish. And you shake it up in a shaker with ice, and then you strain into a well-chilled martini glass and garnish with an orange twist, and then whatever punishment you think that Pope deserves. It's got kind of a red cardinal thing happening. It does. It does, indeed. Mm -hmm. Do you have to kiss the ring before you... Shake the shaker, or? I think that's the godfather. You have to lick around the glass as if kissing, like, it's a very large <laughs> ring. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> uh, I brought some entertainment. Ooh. Oh, good. Being hacked apart by a pack of devils and having our souls turned into a pack of unearthly five-hooved, three-eyed boars while the sodomites watch. Ooh. Last week we established that sodomites are anybody who just aren't vanilla. Yes. Yes. So that part I understood. I feel like I got that. The rest of it, five-toed, three-eyed, elbow, wonk-nose, lily-livered, what? Five-hooved, three-eyed boars. Unearthly, five-hooved, three-eyed boars. I work with an unearthly boar. Like, she tells the worst <laughs> stories. <laughs> He's right there. So, okay. Okay. I think I, okay, I think I get it. And so, like, we're tormented, but our souls are also tormented. Yes, we are mm -hmm. tormented. Well, this is, a, again, that Cartesian dualism thing that happens, because once the souls are reunited with the bodies after the millennium, it won't matter so much. But until then, the souls are separate and could be tormented separately. Oh, I thought this was kind of the Egyptian, the soul travels on while the body doesn't. Might be. Mm. That's Yeah, that's where I was going with it, too. Like, the whole Egyptian, that one um, book that showed the torments of the the punished beings in the afterworld and they had their souls were also being punished. One's body is hacked apart by devils and one's mm -hmm. soul is turned into a pack of five hooved unearthly three-eyed boars. Oh, multiple wow, so, okay. five hooved three-eyed boars. Yes. So your soul becomes that. So your body's hacked a bit, but then your soul goes on to become. Yeah. It's like a, it's a reverse legion. Interesting. Okay. That didn't sound so bad. And yeah, it's so it could be boars, like you're boring, like it makes more sense for your soul to be turned into like a bunch of boring people. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Ooh, it's, it's very dry and dusty. <laughs> like the afterlife. Or it's very poopy. Like the afterlife. Uh-huh, right. Well, since today we're going to be talking about panderers and seducers. And avocados. Oh, mm -hmm. he figured it out. Oh my god, Spoilers. <laughs> Not just regular avocados, not the kind that are 48 cents at EGB. Haas avocados. These are a buck 28. Wow. Nice. The I big ones. I splurged. Did so you I get a raise? Well, I'm pandering for a raise. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh. Okay. Next step. Okay. Next step, seducing for a raise. What about flattery? Do you think that would work? It depends. Oh. Uh -huh. Work on me. Jacob, I like your, I like your headphones. 
<laughs> They're very round. No, Thank it's not going to work. No. They Thank fit you. your head. That's they, co- <laughs> they cover your ears nicely. That is, these are all true things you say, and I appreciate them very much. Gratitude <laughs> and bliss. Can I have a raise? I will double your pay. <gasps> yes! So isn't that then usury? No, that's cruelty to bears. Yes. And no actual money is changing hands, so it really can't be usury. Okay. All right. I'd have to be making money off of his industry. Right. And that's that's certainly not happening. It is problematic. Yeah. So did you do anything with these avocados, or was that just just have some avocados? Guacamole and chips. Oh. It's nice for an office party. Yeah, yeah. 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 Very good. Well, today we are tackling Dante's Inferno, predictably, Cantos 17 through 22, which is a little bit less ambitious than last week's chaotic mishap. It was chaotic. <laughs> we, yeah, we just tried to cover, we, we, tr- we flew too close to the sun that day. We did, we did. We threw too many belts off cliffs that day. <laughs> apparently, apparently the Dante retcons in the middle of one of these cantos and says the belt was actually something he tried to catch the leopard with in book one. Yes, but we d- mm, no. that's not that's that doesn't no no that's it really doesn't lie. ring true there. Uh huh. He didn't try to catch that leopard. So as we as we do every session, I'm just want to check in and see how everybody's faring since we are pretty much like exactly in the middle of our journey. So you know it's important for us to keep track of our progress or any uh, concerns or negative feelings that we might be having. So we're in the middle of the middle of our lives. We're in the middle of the middle of our lives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So first question, since I've been reading the Inferno, my sleep has been undisturbed and restful. Do you remember the five point scale? Five is a lot. Zero is none. Right. Five is all the time. Zero is at no time. Yes. Okay. So Jamin, since you had your mouth open. Uh, five, most of the time. Jamin's mouth is open. <laughs> Does that disturb your sleep when your mouth is open? Uh, Does it disturb the sleep of others? I was going to say, I haven't woken myself up snoring yet, so I would like to believe that I've been having a wonderful night's rest. Okay, so five. Okay, so Jacob? You know, I want to say something funny, but I slept like a rock for the last week. It's been wonderful. So would you say you swooned? I would. I would say I have had some swooning moments. Okay. Yes. Swooned as if you were sleeping the sleep of the dead? Yes. Yes. It's been lovely. Okay, so five all of the time. Yes. Uh, okay. And I would say I'm sorry, did you have did you have more to say? Well, just is all of the time implying that I'm never awake? Or is it just normal sleep? Well, how do you what do you think it means? I feel like if I was sleeping twenty four seven there'd be something wrong. Do you know you're awake now? No. So I have, uh, my sleep has been undisturbed and restful. Uh, no, at no time has my sleep been undisturbed and restful. That's very sad. It is. Is it because you have cats and they dance on your face? And steal your um, breath? <laughs> it's the cats sleeping on my chest and stealing my essence. Mm, uh, they do that. That is keeping me awake because I don't know anymore if I have a soul. Okay, moving on. <laughs> um, okay, so... Since I've been reading the Inferno, I have been able to participate fully and productively in my work and day-to-day activities. Still batting a like a three on this one because yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. work and Inferno are blurring in strange ways. Not that mm-hmm. live work is particularly hellish, but 
that it's very hard to manage columns of data and condos at the same time. Do you find yourself trying to poke them with pitchforks? Yes. Those columns of data? Yeah, yeah, it works. Uh-huh. It works. Yeah. Sometimes I boil them in pitch. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about you, Jamin? Uh, I'm going to go with a three, too, because it's it's not all the time. It's not none the time. Monday was really, really busy. And, you know, we were just nonstop because Monday is everyone wants to get stuff done on Monday. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I thought I'd take a, a chance and I, I threw my belt over the cubicle wall. Oh. And sure enough, like a monster, HR rose from the deep and was like, excuse me, sir, please put that back on. <laughs> I, I hate it when that happens. <laughs> so Jerry on from HR. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I had to watch a, a video on uh, acceptable policies. It was terrible. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So, yeah, I guess more than half of the time, it's been hard to be productive. What with all the screaming and the boiling and the ganashing. The swooning. The, the swooning, the flushing of, of hopes. Uh, it's quite... Cacophonous. So, number three. Since I've been reading The Inferno, I've been able to maintain satisfying relationships with others. Can I pass? You passed no. last week. Oh. I, you can I, punt. Let's 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 say it too. Um this okay. this this life as a third rate Dante scholar is really eating into my personal time. Oh okay. yeah, uh, personal time. Uh it's it's, I have more things to say to people, yes. but mm-hmm. less time to say it. Okay. Like, please, yeah. give me five minutes of your time to talk about Canto, you know, 19. And they're like, uh, no, get back to work. Okay. I do sometimes drop hints that I'm reading the Inferno in social media to see if anybody bites, but they keep swiping left. Oh, wow. Yeah. Has anybody ever, you know... Swipe right to transition from one part of hell to another well, for you? No, that would be like a purgatorio moment, and it hasn't happened yet. Okay. If you All right. if you post the, it upside down, they'll have to turn their phone upside down to read it, and when they swipe left, they're accidentally swiping right, and you've tricked them. Well, if I'm in the position to take their phone out of their hands and put it back upside down, I'm doing fairly well for myself at that point. Life goals. Yes. So would you say, if you had to give that a numerical two? Uh, Upside down, it would be a Z. Okay, Z, Z, okay. I would say, because I have been walking around with my head on backwards, it's really hard to know if I even, who I'm encountering and who I'm talking to. So I I think I'm going to say, at no time. I like that you're putting yourself in the circle of prophets and diviners. That's kind of neat. Well, I knew that was going to happen. Oh, okay. So, number four. Since I've been reading The Inferno, I've found joy in social and recreational activities. I've had one social recreational activity. It was a Great British Bake Off. It was very nice. Yeah. I loved it. Mm-hmm. Every minute of it was bliss with, with, with pastry that I could not eat. So, tempered bliss. I'll call it a four. Okay. Okay. It's been raining a lot in Austin, so I haven't been outside much. But I have been watching a lot of YouTube videos of anime cat girls. Does that count? Don't you always watch a lot of YouTube videos of anime cat girls? I played the 27th. Okay. 
What is the 27th? Uh, Congress cannot grant itself a raise while in session. Oh, okay. Okay. All, all right. Always, okay. Jermaine. So would you say two? Yeah, two. This has been a, a less social week for me. Okay. I would say uh, social and recreational activities. Since it was Halloween. Yes. Well, it was Halloween. It was Halloween. And so there, you know, we had the excuse of Halloween to, again, poke people with pitchforks and force them into a tub of hot tar. Or, you know, we had like a kiddie swimming pool of hot tar. So actually, you know, we kind of looked up. Like I finally was really kind of able to achieve a recreational goal that I'd had for a while. Nice. Nice. Giving the the kitties little balls of pitch would be really cute. Yeah, yeah I think. Uh huh. Yeah, and we had some like we had some good sized holes dug in the yard, sort of ahead of time, just yeah. in case anybody decided to assassinate somebody. <laughs> and... It's a Halloween malbulge. Yeah, very Halloween mal- That was the theme. That was the theme this year. So I'd say probably a five. Oh, nice, nice. I'm jealous. You should be. You really should be. Okay, so our last question. Since I've been reading the Inferno, I've been mistaken for the Pope. Three. Solidly yeah. three. I get that mm-hmm. a lot. It's I, I I have been wearing a lot of tall hats lately. And yeah, I'll I'll get cat called across the parking lot and then I turn around and like, oh, it's it's you, it's not the Pope, my mistake. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I think it's we've all we've all been suffering from uh being mistaken for the Pope. So I'd say probably like yeah, I'd say it's a four for me. Yeah. I, I enjoy the attention, but it, it does feel a little bit misleading. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know. You feel you feel a little bad. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, well, thank you all. I'm, I'm As I said, I'm keeping score, and I'll have a, a um, very scientific chart of our uh, overall progress throughout this journey. I think we left our last episode on a cliffhanger and dead air at the same time. A real cliffhanger. Uh-huh. Yes. And that was that a monster was rising from the depths of the waterfall below in a way that strongly indicated a much-hoped-for action sequence. And did that happen? Yes. Yeah. Have you seen The NeverEnding Story? It's true. It was very similar to The NeverEnding Story. You're yeah. absolutely right. But, mm-hmm. but with mixed plaids. <laughs> so I think we all want to talk about the beaver the beaver is mysterious. Can I summarize this chapter first? Yes. And then we can go to the beaver. But um, <sighs> okay. it's uh, Canto 17. Rising from the depths, a scorpion-tailed monster with a man's face and way too many colors. Gurion is a crime against art. Well, no, this Canto is about violence against art, although mm-hmm. it really means industry rather than art. We encounter usurers, endlessly obsessed with their little bitty purses. Dante saddles up on Gurion and flies down a circle eight, and it's like Falcor. I'm a luck dragon. <laughs> and the beavers. Beavers. With colors more, groundwork or embroidery, never in cloth did Tartars make, nor Turks, nor were such tissues by Arachne laid, as sometimes wherries lie upon the shore that part are in the water, part on land, and as among the guzzling Germans there, the beaver plants himself to wage his war. Yeah, so explain to me all of the above. Starting with the beaver and the Germans. Well, the beaver is, I think it's referenced by C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. Beavers serve Aslan and not the White Queen. So they have this endless war they wage against the coming winter. 
okay. You're right. C.S. Lewis stole that from Dante? The other way around, certainly. Oh, yeah, no, that, <laughs> yeah. that makes sense. Right. He was a medievalist. I don't know what that means, but he was. So, uh, the the translation that I have just talks about beavers and how they, uh, it was it believed that they swatted fish out of the water. There's nothing in there about waging a war. No. I like, I like beavers going to war. I do like the idea. Of, I, I like that much better than just regular old beaver, you know, work-a-day antics. If you want to amuse yourself, let's look for these. Go to YouTube and find the song, The Ferrets of Old England. <laughs> it talks about them marching as to war, and it's very cute. Okay, okay. I don't think Burke says beaver. I think Burke has crocodiles. Crocodiles? Well, that makes kind of more sense. I mean, they have very similar tails. Yeah. Different hmm. teeth. They have way different teeth. Yeah, yeah. For sure. But the rest of the entire thing is like mixed plaids and such. Um, they, they talk about how there's a bunch of different colors and different patterns and different embroideries and different base cloths, and it's a chaotic mess. Mm-hmm. In Dr. Cliff Note's discussion of this text, he says that this mishmash of colors and patterns shows that Guryon is an incarnation of fraud. But the chapter is Crimes Against Art, and mm-hmm. I believe that he's just very tacky. Oh, I believe that too. I think art definitely has those two meanings. Right. Um, because Dante himself is an artist. He's a, a poet. So anything that is kind of against the artistic arrangement of words or images. And I think he might even be wearing a tank top. I think he is, yeah. actually. They talk about the fur going up to his shoulders. <laughs> In the graphic novel that I have, he actually looks kind of a little bit like him in the Powerpuff Girls. Oh. Oh. Mm-hmm. Behold the monster with the pointed tail who cleaves the hills and breaketh walls and weapons. Behold him who infecteth all the world. Which I think is very telling since Gurion is like the spirit of fraud. This kind of is mm-hmm. a, a, a bold statement by Mr. Dante about the particular handbasket the world is going to hell in. <laughs> I also think it's interesting, my understanding of him is like he kind of, much like the beaver in the guzzling German's land, um, rests kind of his upper body on the ledge and seems to be just kind of a very benign, innocent creature, but then has... Kind of a Kilroy was here. Exactly. Which to me reminded me of the fable of the scorpion and the frog. Do you know this Fable. Is it different than the turtle and the scorpions? No, I don't know this one. It's the same one. It's oh. it's essentially the same idea where the scorpion asks either a frog or a turtle to give him to take him across the water, and the frog or the turtle says, "No, I won't, because you will sting me." And the scorpion says, "Oh no, I would never do that, because then we would both drown." And so the frog slash turtle. Takes the scorpion onto his back. They're trucking along halfway across the water. The scorpion stings them both. And the frog slash turtle says, why would you do that? We're both going to die. And the scorpion says, it's in my nature. So Gurion has a scorpion tail. And that kind of Mm -hmm. is maybe a part of that. But it's not because the earlier incarnations of this. Well, there's hints that this story goes back to like 500 A.D., Mm-hmm. I mean, since the story goes back to like 500 AD, but it's a different sort of story because the frog is 
safe as he buries the scorpion across the river. So very different story there. The idea that the scorpion is bound to sting you to death is like 1500s and beyond, kind of. So I'd like it to be part of this, but it isn't. And also, Urion did not sting anybody, so there's that. They did ride in his back. But there's the constant threat of it, though. And that's what made me think of it, is just because Virgil was conscious of protecting Dante from the sting, that it could happen. Dante and Virgil are hopping on this anti-luck mm-hmm. dragon thing, this horrible tacky sin against art, a manifestation of fraud, and going on this long wee journey it's downwards. It's like Dr. Strangelove. It is. So a suggestion that, uh, again, Mr. Notes uh, brought up is that in this case, Gurion either represents or kind of flip-flop represents the poem itself that they're writing. Oh, because the okay. poem is the poem is a truth that seems like fantasy, and Gurion is a fantasy that seems like truth. So the idea that they are riding down to the level of crimes against humanity on a giant fraud monster is kind of beautiful. It is, and it kind of yeah, like it adds a whole. I don't know. It, to me, though, it adds a little bit more sort self awareness that I think Dante's capable of. <laughs> you know, like he seems so self serious. Yeah, he really does. But I love that idea. Like, I feel like that would be a postmodern version of this. Well, Dorita says the writer has nothing to do with the final product, so I'd buy it. I like the image of the users and their little purses. Mm-hmm. Like it's mm-hmm. very, it's very fussy image. Like they're holding their little purses. They're being stung by gnats and things like that. But they've got their little purses, and that's the most important thing. And they're not going to share. No, I do like that little image as well. And they're they're crying as they look at their little purses because they're so beautiful. I forget because it's mine, and you can't have it. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, that's fair. I think that's it. Or they just can't look at anything else, right? Like they're they're so f- fearful of. Right, their entire life is dominated by these little purses, mm. and there's mm-hmm, no there's mm-hmm. no room to appreciate things. So, why is usury a crime against art? Well, the bears don't like it. Are you asking like in a, just a very pragmatic sense, or are you asking like more rhetorically? Like we know what it is, but why is this a sin? I mean, as, like, as, a, what is th- as an English major, I know the answer. I'm asking in a didactic sense. I think is the is that right? You are asking, are you, are you kind of a, do a platonic turn? Are here? you, are you trying to tell us the answer? <laughs> yes. Are you, are you, are you trying fishing to, for an I'm, answer? Yes. I'm trying to pull the answer out of you. Oh, so, okay. So usury, oh, go ahead, Jamin. You said earlier, you said art, but you mean technology, right? Like Ars Technica. In industry. Indus- industry, of, yeah. right? So, Man's art. Oh, you know what? We had this conversation and I completely forgot it. Yes, this is a callback to the last episode, which... When you said, Jamin, this is the correct answer. Yes. Call on me. I, Victoria, I I Victoria. It so, so it's a crime against art because it's you're not actually making anything. You're making money from money, which is a perversion of the natural order of craft. Yes. In order, like you have to earn something by the sweat of your brow. Yeah. Yes. That's okay. that's the only correct answer. The only correct answer yes. is the answer that I gave. Well, <laughs> yes. We'll be seeing you soon in the circle of prophets and visionaries. 
<laughs> yeah, you will. <laughs> Do we want to jump to 18? Yay! Hmm. Before we go, though, I want to ask a very important question. Has anybody ever written slash fiction about Dante and Virgil? The answer is yes. The answer is almost certainly Because <laughs> it's yes. always yes. Anything that we can imagine there's slash fiction what, about. What? Oh, what? It's uh, rule 34. If it exists, there is slash fiction of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, correct. Okay. Absolutely. <clears throat> 100%. Cuz I feel like we're getting to that territory in our readings tonight. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of get a room moments between Dante and Virgil. Looking at archive of our own, the fan archive, I see mm-hmm. um uh to the stars and back, which has the tags Virgil Dante modern setting public hand jobs. What what what? Greek politicians in hell uh-huh. with the tag, basically, I wrote a gay inferno fan fiction despite my teacher. Now I'm done, I swear. <laughs> he passed me so I wouldn't have to retake his class. Revival, same author. This author's done a lot of work in this field. Mm-hmm. Revival, uh, keywords, Dante, alternate universe, ambiguous, open-ended, out-of-character, Virgil is a bee. Like, a bee is in, buzz? like, an... an- a winged insect, or like B is in short for B. No, a, a winged insect. Huh. That that is very out of character for Virgil. Let's accept this exists and move on. If you write slash fic for fun and or profit, consider Dante and Virgil. Mm-hmm. I think it writes itself, really. Well, Canto nineteen then. <laughs> oh, so oh, we 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 uh, are eighteen. Oh, we skipped uh, Canto eight. Okay, so Canto eighteen mm-hmm. then. We had just got so hot and bothered about the slash fic. Well, this is uh, the the panderers and the seducers, and uh, yes. that seems appropriate. Yeah, we kind yeah. of we almost start with them. No, we do we? Yeah, yeah, we do. We we start with them. Uh, Canto eighteen, Malvolge. We are in a land of tiny prisons or evil ditches Yay. or hahas. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's of, a haha landscape. So it's worth noting that from here on, the next ten cantos are set in a single layer of hell. Yeah. So we're really going very micro on this. But the single layer of hell is divided into ten circles. So it's like onions. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The tone changes a lot here. We get into much more physical punishments, much more trauma, more graphic descriptions as we get into really the worst sins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The big image of this canto is like a circle of sinners walking kind of some of them walking forward towards us, some of them walking opposite them going, Oh, yo, yo. <laughs> and one line is the panderers. And these are people that use other people for their own ends. And the others are the seducers who also use people for their own ends, but a slightly different flavor of use. And these mm-hmm. people are spanked and poked by demons forever. Seems like a fairly eh, eh, torture. It really doesn't seem that bad. I mean, I don't know. This is kind of also where we see the party city devil or party city demons. Right, right, right. We're starting for the first time. Yes, we start to meet real devils. But here's a good line. While I was going on, mine eyes by one encounter were, and straight I said, already with the sight of this one, I am not unfed. That is a very rare octuple backflip double negative. Yeah, that's pretty uh, chewy. Yes. We meet Jason. 
Dante really doesn't seem to like Jason in this particular canto. I feel like there's a different moment with Jason later on. I felt like this was a little crushy. Like, they were kind of crushing on Jason a little no, bit. No, no, no. I mean, courtly poet, romance is best at a distance of 50 feet or more, versus Jason, who's, like, got a tragic, mythical woman in every port and just destroys lives in his wake. He's very down on Jason on this one, as a uh, all-time champion evil seducer type. Well, okay, maybe I'm misreading it. Because at one point, they say... Look there at that great soul that approaches and seems to shed no tears for all his pain. What kingliness moves with him even in hell? It is Jason, who by courage and good advice made off with a Colchin ram. Later it fell that he passed Lemnos, where the women of wrath, enraged by Venus's curse that drove their lovers out of their arms, put all their males to death. So then it goes into him tricking uh, or seducing Hypsipoli. So, but at the first, it seems kind of they're like, you know, you go, bro. Okay. So, in Burke, the same thing. Uh, Virgil pointed and said, see that arrogant looking soul over there who's not crying or skipping around in pain? Okay. That's the original deadbeat dad, Jason of Golden Fleet fame. <gasps> so, so Don, in, in um, this translation, either I'm not getting the sarcasm or the translator. And I found the tra- I found an error in this translation that we'll talk about later. Either I'm not getting the sarcasm or he's not getting the sarcasm. Mm. One of the two. And th- this one's very much not sarcastic. It's, it's he got her pregnant. He left him, did the same thing to Medea. Then he left her for Prisa and then he left her. And this is where, you know, it's, it's very straightforward, not sarcastic. There's the deadbeat dad. He left her, he left her, he left her. Mm-hmm. And he's still proud of himself. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, this one with the kingliness and whatnot. I don't know who's, maybe it's me, maybe it's the translator not getting it. Mm. So. There did he leave her pregnant and forlorn. Such sin unto such punishment condemns him. And also for Medea is vengeance done. With him go those who in such wise deceive, and this sufficient be of this first valley to know, and those that in its jaws it holds. A little more unkind in the... Higglebottom version. Yes, it is. Yeah. I feel like there's some stuff that my my guy isn't picking Gl- up on. Glossing over. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Your translation is from the 50s. It is from the 50s. Yeah, maybe there's... So there's, a, there's some, some stuff in there. Yeah. There. Mm-hmm. We didn't talk about the flatterers. I like the flatterers. They're in this scene. Yes. And I found out, because I was looking up why flattery is actually a sin, the flattery defined as the act of giving excessive compliments generally for the purpose of ingratiating oneself to the subject. Um, so it's manipulation, but it is also considered the first step in adultery. So from the book of Proverbs, uh, there's a warning of the quote, flattering lips of an adulteress. So <laughs> it's like you have the seducers and the panderers, and then you also have like the flatterers, which are kind of like the gateway into adultery. I thought the gateway to adultery was downloading the app. <laughs> yes. I think that is potentially like, I think the gate is open and you're driving through when you download that app. But the image of the flatterers being like covered in sewage and slapping each other on the back and pitching each other's cheeks. I like it. I like it a lot. It's the most unsubtle moment 
Yes. One of, <laughs> like we're veering into like we're veering into just complete lack of subtlety in the, this whole swath of of cantos because the the s word actually makes an appearance. And not in the Biffle Buffle edition. No, I'm sure it doesn't. That just seemed, I was shocked. I was shocked when I saw it in this one, because it's in the 1950 edition. Did, have you heard of Dante called, have you heard him called the master of the disgusting? No, but I so, would certainly like to call him that at some point in time, if he shows up. <laughs> My translation sort of assumes that everybody knows that Dante is, is uh, referred to as the master of the disgusting and here, the, 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 you know, the language definitely becomes coarser. He starts to work completely blue. And is it about the subject matter? Because we are sort of getting into this more sort of bodily hell. Is it sort of Dante? The, the, the journey is taking its toll on him and he's becoming kind of more debased or at least sort of reacting more strongly to things. And that's why this language is coming out. But it's also like the distinction between what, like the reactions to Dante presenting this, this coarseness is uh, reactions have differed from Protestants to Catholics. This, this one, I almost want to argue against the whole thing because Dante was mm-hmm. like a million years ago. Right? Roughly. Yeah, roughly. Mm-hmm. And Henry Bafflewiff Baffle Bafflebottom mm-hmm. was what, eight, 1800s? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So both of them were pre modern plumbing. Okay. So open, open sewage in the middle of the streets. You throw your chamber pot out in the middle of the street. You get the black plague. You get over it. Sewage, filth, night soil, poop, unksu, whatever you want to call it. It was a common thing. It was like open sewage, while still gross, just existed, right? Life was poopy. Life was pretty Life poopy. Was poopy, yeah. Back there then. was poop in mm-hmm. the middle of the streets. There were people whose job it was to, to ride a wagon around and collect poop and take it away. Was it as terrible to them as it is to us now who have hygiene? That's a very good point. Because, uh, I mean, the, the, the translator argues that Protestants differ from Catholics in their reaction to this because Protestants see profanity as offensive, Mm. whereas Catholics don't see profanity as offensive, instead see blasphemy Mm. as offensive. Yeah, so, uh, right, right, right. Sorry, I lost my point. That does kind of make Mm -hmm. sense, but but I just want to like, and again, your version was written in the 50s. I think the first modern indoor toilet was installed in America in the 1950s. So that that kind of like the transition of what is offensive and terrible kind of makes sense. But yeah, like yeah. did so man, from Dante's perspective, oh look, there's a guy covered in poop. Yeah, that's Jim. So right, that's like duh, everybody's covered in poop to some extent. Yeah. So I, I'm sorry for disappearing for like Two minutes of conversation here. Oh, were you gone? But, yes, I was. Um, you know how Google has those like very telegraphed, like short article discussions or descriptions, and you can never quite figure out where they come from. And mm-hmm. sometimes they tell about the article that it's going to or not. Mm-hmm. I was looking for Dante, Master of the Disgusting, and the 
Humble ISD School District has an article with a PowerPoint, which I cannot access, and that's what's frustrating me. The summary says, Why does Dante the poet use this canto to have Virgil tell Dante the pilgrim dot 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 Dante, the master of the disgusting, comma, do you know why anyone who uses his butt <laughs> oh my gosh i i cannot access this link and it's really vexing me wow do we know anybody who has access to that link no in the humboldt school if district. you work for humble isd uh <laughs> reach out to us at the dispatchist i have one just like funny thing that the the map in my book of the uh circle of the eighth circle with all the bulges actually looks like one of those cross sections of the skin that you would see in your health book and oh with like the, the shows, pores yeah that shows how pimples are that are makes made. a lot of disgusting sense i like it it really does doesn't i mean it's just it's remarkable because even like the little the little path drawn over it is like the little kind right. of flakes of dead skin nice. and yeah yeah uh Canto 19, Getting Weird with Simony. Mm-hmm. Dante enters the valley of people upside down in baptismal fonts with their feet on fire. And the person doing the biggest baptismal font foot of flame shuffle is, guess who? The Pope. The Pope, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and in fact, it's a pile of popes. So it's a... <laughs> Uh-huh. Each pope stack. A pope stack. It's like turtles all the way down. Uh, each pope is shoved further down into the stones as the next one, who's always worse, arrives. It's really nice because each subsequent pope is, in fact, worse than the than the his predecessor. Right. 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 Mm-hmm. This, is, this is pretty much guaranteed. Any post-exile pope is worse than one that came before. I, I have the impression that Dante does not particularly care for popes. Hmm. I think this is sustained. Hmm. I mean, I could probably build a fairly good thesis on Dante doesn't like popes as my my text. I bet that's in that uh, PowerPoint that you can't access. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) This is the one that got got away for me. (laughs) I know. I know. So this is the Bolgia of simony. Simony Mm -hmm. is the crime of extorting money from the church, using your office for gains, that sort of thing. So obviously, this is a special interest for Dante, who does not like church corruption at all. The origin of Simon is Simon Magus, who saw Jesus performing miracles and tried to buy the technology from him, basically. Mm -hmm. They said no. So the dominant image here is people upside down with their legs sticking out of baptismal fonts, which is really cute. I like that. Uh, Mm -hmm. And their feet are on fire, and their feet are on fire because it's kind of a reflection of like the water of baptism on your forehead. Instead, it's the flaming oil of baptism on your feet. It's a good image. I like it. It works. It sticks. I like it. Too. It's it's sort of fun. Like if you know if you had the right music, the little feet kind of waving <laughs> would be sort of. What is the right music? <gasps> Just like me, they want to be <laughs> closer to you. <laughs> do do do. I like I like Burke a lot because well, one because he's not Henry Wadswibble Wobble Wobble, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but in this it's he, he yells down and says, "Hey, who are you?" And the 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 quote comes back, "Oi, Boniface, is that you? Is it possible you're <laughs> down here in hell already? I hadn't expected you for a few more years." 
And it's the exact same in all our other translations, but just the phraseology. Is that you? <laughs> from the Bible Bobble edition, ye have made yourselves a god of gold and silver. And from the idolaters, how differ ye, save that he one and ye a hundred worship. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think there's a theological bit here that's worth calling out. Mm-hmm. And this is the general kind of increasing element of Virgil trying to make Dante be an asshole. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, yeah, We've there's been- a, definitely uh, this praise of... And again, this is one of those get a room moments where Virgil is just over the moon that Dante's being kind of a jerk. And there, there's a reason for that. I think it's, it's, it comes up in Conte 20, where he has a moment of genuine sympathy for the, for the sad, sad prophets. Uh, Truly I wept, leaning upon a peak of the hard crag, so that my escort, Virgil, said, Art thou two of the other fools? Here pity lives when it is wholly dead. Who is a greater reprobate than he who feels compassion at the doom divine? Mm, mm-hmm. mm. That's one of those drink moments. Yeah. You know, chug, chug, chug. annoyed. So, uh-huh. yeah, to, to have sympathy for these sinners, and this is, again, more in the next canto, to have sympathy for the sinner is to question God. And I hate to use the phrase hard in his heart because I don't think that's really what they're saying, but purging sympathy is part of how Dante is going to be able to get to Purgatorio and Paradiso. He has to accept God's will, and a part of that is letting go of sympathy for people who have done evil. But Mm -hmm. on the plus side, he has more of this conflict as he goes deeper into hell, and he's dealing with like traitors and fraudsters and criminals and crooks. So it's a little easier than just people that were tossed about by their bodies. Right, yeah. Yeah. Tossed on the tides of grinder. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask if Dante actually invented the toilet here, because we do have the old sinners essentially being flushed out of the baptismal font into the the cracks in the limestone and the rock to make way for the new one. So is that I think we could s- safely say he admitted the flush baptismal font. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think it's a step in the in the it's it's a step in the evolution of the of the flushing toilet. A flush in the right direction. It is a flush. He's flushing out that idea. But also, I wanted to. I was kind of confused by Jason of the Maccabees because we have the we have back to back Jasons here. Before we go too far down this path, listeners, I want you to know that I cut about 20 minutes of discussion of Jason of the Maccabees three episodes ago. So <laughs> so that's why I'm confused. I was, yes. I was actually just about to say, oh, you mean the Jason of the Maccabees who we talked about for 20 minutes three episodes ago that you cut? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was the most boring, convoluted discussion, which confused all of us, so... And that's why I'm confused currently. But it does sound like, so he is guilty of, well, guilty guilty of simony, but also guilty of being a Hellenistic or Hellenizing Jew, like bringing in Greek where, where are you? culture. Okay, let me find Maccabees and Burke. According to the second book of Maccabees, Jason 
uh, revolted against the holy land and the kingdom and set fire to the gatehouse and shed innocent blood. One gets the impression of bad man, and one of his rivals tried to outbid Jason for the priesthood. Yep. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a lot of money changing hands and finding refuge in the land of the Ammonites. And Ammonites are those little curly cute cuttlefish things. Yeah, so you find them in rocks. Right, mm-hmm. right. So, I am confused at this point. Squids are involved. Oh, thank God. <laughs> that makes it, it makes so much more sense now. <laughs> can I, before we go down this rabbit hole, can I please go to Kanto 20 because... yes. I ha- I'm having Maccabee flashbacks. I don't. I- oh well, I'll skip ahead to the whole like the whole revelations thing. I mean, that was like part of Dante's rant that kind of just went like off the rails. Oh, okay, off the rails. I like. Yeah, where he starts comparing the Pope he's talking to the the Pope in question to the. It's kind of like an she- Uber Pope, really. Like it's the Pope of Pope. What like the Pope of Pope? You order the Pope yeah, on like, your phone and he drives up. Well, no, it's not like Pope. It's not like Pope Boniface or Pope Innocent or whatever. It's just the Pope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he is the Pope, but he compares the the Pope to she who sits on waters, fornicating with the kings of earth. Yeah, he goes into the whole like seven heads and ten horns, or a Babylon sort of moment. And, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and the beast of of revelations and such. Yes, throwback to mm-hmm. episode. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but then, I mean, that's kind of what really gets Virgil, like, all hot and bothered. But not in a good way. No. Yeah. Not in a good way. Not in a poetic way. But yeah, I just saw that as an interesting, kind of, out-of-scale rant on Dante's part. In Wikipedia, it says, Dante delivers a denunciation of the simoniacal, simoniacal corruption of the church. A succinct summary. Mm, mm-hmm. Including whores and seven-headed... And that little horn... Twit. (laughs) Canto 20! Canto 20! Avant! Here we go. Canto 20, don't let the door slap you, something, something, something. Rewind that, not saying that. Uh, Summary. Diviners who sin against God by trying to read his mind uh, endlessly walk with their heads on backwards, their eyes full of tears, so they're looking backwards forever with blurry vision. As lower down my sight descended on them, wondrously each one seemed to be distorted from chin to the beginning of the chest, for towards the reins the countenance was turned, and backwards it behoved them to advance, as to look forward had been taken away from them. We encounter a number of medieval magicians and sorcerers and things like that. Uh, Here's a good line, or a good ten lines. The next, who is so slender in the flanks, was Michael Scott, who of a variety of magical illusions knew the game. Behold Guido Bonetti, behold Stente, who now unto his leather and his thread would fain have stuck, but he too late repents. Behold the wretched ones who left the needle, the spool and rock, and made themselves fortune tellers. They wrought their magic spells with herb and image. So I went down a little bit of a Michael Scott rabbit hole. Yeah, I'm curious about him. Yeah, so I don't, we haven't talked about him before, I don't think, but we haven't, I was curious because we haven't really gotten all those Middle names, ages yet. Right, you're right. So, uh, but I was curious out of all those names, it was like just, and Michael Scott, like, you know, Steve from accounting. <laughs> Steve. And it really, I mean, it's the character. From and Art the- Carney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Steve from accounting <laughs> also has slender flanks. <laughs> They're lovely. They're, he's works on, he works on those flanks. Um, so tell us about Michael Scott. 
<laughs> so this is where my my translator let me down because not only does he spell Michael Scott's name wrong, it's not Scott with two T's like from The Office. It is Scott with one T. Like from, and also he from claims Scotland. that the guy's... Right, and he's Scottish, and the, and this translator claims he's Irish, so... Oh, he's different trying countries. to start a war right there. It, no kidding. Yeah, yeah, so Scottish, Scott with one T. Um, but he's a fascinating figure, um, and he, <laughs> here's probably why he's in a bulge, because one of his quotes is, uh, every astrologer is worthy of praise and honor, um, since such a doctrine as astrology, he probably knows many secrets of God and things which few know. Oh, so yes, there he goes. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly why he's there. But also, he was believed to actually have supernatural powers. And one of the legends of Michael Scott is that he used to feast his friends with dishes brought by spirits from the royal kitchens of France and Spain and other lands. So, ghost food. Allegedly, he's, he well, served his guests now, hang on. food. This is Scotland. So he's getting good food. That's magic. That's kind of, well, yeah. that, is, that, is, that is magic. <laughs> and he also is said to have turned, a, turned to stone a coven of witches, and those have become the stone circle of Long Meg and her daughters. Oh, I've heard about them. Mm-hmm. They deserved it. Yeah. yeah. They, I'm sure they had. They had. They, I mean, dressed as they were, like, what did they think was going to happen? Good job, Michael Scott. Uh huh. So you know, they were asking for it. But the reason why he's described as being uh, thin in the flank <laughs> is, uh, well, one scholar, Richard K, argues that Dante was referencing a physiognomic description taken from Scott's own liber physiognomy, namely that thin and small ribs signify an individual who is weak, who does little labor, and who is sagacious and bad. So Dante was turning Michael Scott's own description against him. Nice. And one last little fun fact about Michael Scott is that he foresaw his own death. He always believed that he was going to die from a stone Throne, or you know that that flew at his head, and so he went around wearing an iron helmet to prevent this from happening. Okay. And lo, the one time he took his helmet off, guess what happened? A rock. Yes. <gasps> <laughs> and wow. that's why he's in hell. Yeah. Irony. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yep. Canto twenty-one. This is the one with the baristas, right? It is. It is the again? <laughs> what? Oh, Barbarici. Uh huh. <laughs> no. Yes and no. Oh. Oh. Uh, um. I'm, so yeah, we're getting, I'm getting into some drawing an espresso on this one in green crayon. <laughs> Barbarici means curly beard. <gasps> mm-hmm. That's going to be your new nickname. Conta twenty-one. It's the circle of grafters. And we suddenly meet demons for the first time. And they are taking sinners and burying them in a lake of pitch and kind of shoving them down there. And Virgil decides to make some sort of kind of scene. I think they want directions or something, and he's going to totally, like, throw a Karen over this. Not Karen, but Karen. (laughs) Like, let me see your manager. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. His divine multipass is still working, so take a drink. Woohoo! And the demons offer to give him an escort to a nearby bridge. 
because the well the nearest bridge was collapsed because of some event that answers one of Jamin's questions. What's for dinner? A bridge. No. Uh, <laughs> the bridge that collapsed, the nearby bridge collapsed 1,266 years ago. And that, combined with the preamble, lets us date the Inferno to Monday, Thursday of a specific year. I do remember asking how we knew that. Demons. And I do remember thinking what happened 1,266 years ago, mm -hmm. but I'm still not convinced it's Maundy Thursday. Well, it's, a, it's like an Easter-ish time in a Jubilee year. So, yeah, anyway. But, but that gives us a year date fairly, fairly specifically. Well, also the, the end of the previous canto, he mentions, Virgil mentions Cain with the bushel of thorns which is supposed to be the man in the moon, which I had no understanding of. But the translation says that the moon, it shows that the moon is setting on Holy Saturday, the year 1300. Well, and Easter is a lunar holiday, I think, isn't it? I was going like to say, 30, mm -hmm. yeah. 30 days after the full moon. So again, we have another thing that lets us date this passage. Mm -hmm. Eat. So there are two things going on here. The harrowing that has left everything in ruins well, and then really bad infrastructure. To where all the bridges are out. Well, maybe it's that once hell is harrowed, it's always kind of in the process of being harrowed. I don't know. It is It is neat that we are dealing with the time period of Easter for Dante's journey because he's harrowing hell in a sense. Oh. Not in a very compelling sense because he's just kind of one person walking through hell and then leaving. I don't yeah. feel like hell feels very harrowed at that point, yeah. but still. No. You know, I feel like a lot of people were annoyed by his passage, and that's that's pretty harrowing. But yeah, he annoyed hell. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, he harried. Mm, he harried hell, but he the did not harrying of hell. hell. The harrying of hell. <laughs> the harassing of hell. So, so, so we've got a lot of demons that are named cute little things, and some commentarians, commentarianists suspect they're probably people from Dante's local in Florence. Cute little nicknames like um, Malakota, Bad Tail, who's kind of the the big leader of the area. Malabrancha, Evil Claws. Yeah, Scarmiglione, Libitio, Dragonazzo, just like Little Dragon, I think. And the Barista. And no, that's Curly Beard, is Barbarici's Curly Beard. Bad Dog, who is Bad Dog? I have, can I tell you the one, the list that I have here? Sure, that's probably more coherent. I have Grizzly and Helkin, Dead Dog, Curly Beard, Grafter, Dragon Tooth, Pig Tusk, Cat Claw, Cramper and Crazy Red. Oh. And then Crazy I did see Crazy Red. And then there's Spoonlicker mm -hmm. and Tallowmonger. <laughs> these these are the Yule Boys of Christmas past. This is amazing. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. And and they seem to be kind of like that cuz they just really are like little I mean, this is the again, my translation refers to these two cantos as the gargoyle canto cantos and Again, there's this assumption that we all know that the Commedia is supposed to resemble a cathedral, so this is where you would have the grotesqueries. Oh, like the gargoyles. Yeah, that's kind of an interesting mm -hmm. idea. To my mind, this is the moment in the mystery play where all the devils pour out in a moment of chaotic diablery and like pile over each other, which is why the entire scene leads up to a fart joke. 
Oh, spoilers. <laughs> spoilers. Well, this is like when everybody's getting bored and you need some kind of little little comedic moment. Listeners, get you know? ready. Da, 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 yeah, so, da, da, yeah, the, 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 all of this kind of feeds into the commander of this particular squad of demons, Bad Tail. Malakota. Malakota, like Bad Tail. He hurled him down and over the hard crag turned round and never was a mastiff loosed in so much hurry to pursue a thief. And he to me, I will not have thee fear. Let them gnash on according to their fancy because they do it for these boiling wretches. Along the left-hand dike they wheeled about, but first had each one thrust his tongue between his teeth towards their leader for a signal. And he has made a trumpet of his rump. So the entire team of devils turned towards their leaders and goes, and the leader goes, <laughs> and it is beautiful. It's just like in Braveheart, where they turn around and they yell, Freedom! Except yes, farts. very right. Yeah. Something along those lines. Freedom farts. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Burke. And I just, I like this simple beauty of the ribaldry. It's one by one, the devil saluted, stuck out their tongues, made raspberries at their boss, and turned and go. left along the path. The chief ripped a huge fart and salute as they went. It's a beautiful moment. So it's like the most kind of like literal ripped description of everything. Yeah. 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 With completely without art. Well, there's a lot of art. It's true. But, you know, like it's not kind of trying to be fancy. Oh, I thought you meant the pictures. Oh, no. <laughs> Artifice. And, oh, and again, gotcha. let's say. Just because we have to, let's compare this with Henry Long Fobble Wobble Wobble. I just did. Oh, did you? Along the left-hand dike they wheeled about, but first each one had thrust his tongue between his teeth towards their leader for a signal, and he had made a trumpet of his rump. I'm actually fine with that. This one uses the word ass. Well, trumpet of his ass. It's a little, like, we're getting really blue here. A little clearer. With, uh, the, in the, for the 1950s. Oh, I could have sworn this was differenter. So one reason possibly for the fart, and I think we're going to have to have to stay here for quite some time until the air clears. Uh, oh, dear. <laughs> has the air become embrowned? Yes, it has. Is that this is showing kind of how base we've gotten. As we draw closer to the heart of everything in hell, the level of grotesque is higher. The level of physicality is higher. And this is like a really base moment in the in the story. And I think it's, again, kind of like, if everything's sort of a debasement of... The thing itself, like in the previous canto, you know, the he makes a point of describing the um, the sinners crying so that their tears, you know, uh, flowed through their buttocks. You know, it's like okay, well, that's kind of funny, but it's also like oh, that's a debasement of sorrow. Oh, right. right. So, yeah, we've had we've had other butts in the very recent mm-hmm. past. And so this is also kind of a debasement of like a proper sort of military uh, bearing or comportment or, you know, like how a military squad would officially operate. And all of the Inferno is structured as very conical sort of gradiated descending things, all leading up to Satan's butt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which so we're getting is, close. Yeah, it's kind of an inversion of like the, the image of Satan's butt that you get in Hieronymus mm-hmm. Bach where the sinners are poured into his gullet and excreted into hell. Because the butt becomes this passage moment. I don't actually know if they go up Satan's butt literally or more like climb up his rump. 
I do know where my mind goes. It's probably a little of both. Okay. I mean, you're going you're gonna to get both, probably. Okay, good. If you're following yeah. along at home, take a moment, close your eyes, and just think, Satan's rump. <laughs> well, Satan's rump makes it sound so kind of innocent and kind of like, oh, it's Satan's rump. Well, if Satan himself farted, the entire inferno would serve as a resonation chamber. <laughs> it would be awesome, and that might It'd be like the little Ricola. Ricola. There'd be even more earthquakes. Mm-hmm. This this would be the echo chamber to end all echo chambers. I was going to make a joke about like holding torches up to. Satan's butt. That's probably why they keep the air so blisteringly cold in the lower circles, because people tried that once. I bet th- I bet you're right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's something about Dante being accused of graft also. Oh, yeah, because this is like a fraud level, and Dante and Virgil had to like frantically defend themselves to prove their honesty somehow. Yeah, and, and that was one of the other things. That, that's right, because Virgil was very careful to make sure that they didn't see Dante. And one of the reasons why was because he himself is potentially guilty of graft and would be punished as the sinners, as the, the grafters were. In a way, this is Dante's redemption arc, too. So let's, let's not write off that he is a deeply flawed person and knows it. Mm-hmm. But Dante's writing this. Why would Dante admit to graft and then being accused of graft? And that this is so breaking the fourth wall that. Have you ever read the Superman comics and said this sucks? Like <laughs> a character without flaws is not a character at all. They're not interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to say that Dante is interesting necessarily either, because I find him extremely frustrating at no, times. No, but, no, yeah. But I would prefer that than that Dante actually was pious and holier than thou. Because again, this is the journey of all of our lives, not Dante's lives. And no, this is very much the journey of Dante's life, and he's just letting us tag along. <sighs> Man, now you're saying he's an unreliable narrator, and I don't like that. Canto twenty-two. Canto 22. Yes. He complains about the fart at the end of Canto 21. Does he? Yes. Aww. I don't know if he complains about it. I think he's I think he's It was the best fart. Kind of in awe of it cuz can I read you my first couple of uh, lines? I'll, I'll let you have one if I give you two. Y'all both read your passages. We're here for all eternity. Okay. okay. That's right. We have time. I've seen horsemen breaking up camp. I've seen the beginning of the assault, the march, and the muster, and at times the retreat and riot. I've seen where chargers trampled your land, or errantines. I've seen columns of foragers, shocks of tourney, and running of tilts. I've seen the endless lines march to bells, drums, trumpets from far and near. I've seen the march on signals from a castle. I've seen the march with native and foreign gear. But never yet have I seen horse or foot, nor ship in range of land, nor sight of star, Take its direction from so low a toot. <laughs> low a toot. Wig- Wigglebottom. There's so much wind up, and then there's the pitch. Right. Wigglebottom says, but never yet with a bagpipe so uncouth. I was going to say, Henry Wads Wigglebottomsworth, never with a bagpipe so uncouth. Right? That's clean. I feel like those are, yeah, they're, they're kind of... Uh, I mean, he's directly equating bagpipes with farts. Well, I mean... But I feel like this is kind of like, damn, that was 
That's something. Okay, and then and then Burke is like, all this blah, 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 this, that, 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 signaled by such a loud and stinky fart. It wasn't just loud, (laughs) it stank, right? So, and where did he get that from? Uh, I think he's, I think he's embellishing. I think he might be, just a little bit. So we're, we're, we've, we've, uh, Canto 22. Dante is in, right. Dante is in wonder about the, the majesty of the fart. Yes. And again, I feel like that I was right in my original expectations of there being kind of madcap antics in the Inferno because here they are. This is, this is where we get like the three stooges. Well, and I think that we reinforced the idea of the fart as a call to battle. And that's important in case you missed it in the previous. I really want to stick on this fart bit for a long time. It makes me happy. <laughs> I, <laughs> I had not yet seen the fart as a call to battle. So that that does add greater depth and meaning to... Yeah. <laughs> so Dante has to question his life choices at this point. They have a conversation with his soul just before the demons tear him to shreds. And then Mr. Soul offers the demons a pretty sweet deal. He'll whistle up some more sinners using their secret sinner whistle that says, It's clear. Because what the sinners are doing, these are the grafters. The ones that kind of like basically steal from other people and shift their work off of things like that. But bad public servants. And they're hiding under the bubbling pitch from the demons who have pokey mm-hmm. bits. And then occasionally one will surface to get out of the pitch for a few moments to get it, get some cool. And the demons will stab him and tear him apart. So that's the game is they're hiding under the pitch. They bob up like frogs. They say a few times and then they get poked. They go back down. So the demons are really enjoying this and they pick a soul up, and the soul says, Wait, wait, wait! I've got a secret! We've got a secret whistle, and if I use it, all the other sinners will come to the top! I don't know how to use that exact voice. Probably not. <laughs> and the, de- the demons all say, Yes, that sounds like a fine idea. Let's try it! That's great! And they all kind of reluctantly look away from him so he can use the secret whistle. And then he runs away. So, I actually don't think they catch him, but there's a huge scene where they all kind of scramble all over each other and, and like fight and, but soothe the other was a doughty sparhawk to clapperclaw him well. And both of them fell into the middle of the boiling pond. So they're like lunging at each other and clogging at each other. And Barbarishi has to kind of pull them apart. Mm-hmm. So very animalistic, very cartoon violence sort of moment. Very Gary Larson kind of hell. Lots of, lots of um, demons and pitchforkies. Yeah, and Shirata, from whose mouth projected on either side a tusk as in a boar, caused him to feel how one of them could rip another fart joke. <laughs> Among malicious cats, the mouse had come, but Barbarici clasped him in his arms and said, Stand ye aside while I enfork him. <laughs> wow. Yes. After he's been enforked, he became enbrowned. <laughs> yes, or enblackened. Enblackened. The, the raw physicality of this is really strong. I mean, there's there's fighting, clawing, and stabbing, and a uh, chase sequence, and the Benny Hill theme, etc. <laughs> Yakety sacks. Yes. Again, like, this is, this is just straight up slapstick, because they, Dante and Virgil, then use all this craziness to kind of slink away. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah they, don't, they don't, like, analyze it for meaning. They just book it, right? Mm-hmm, I can't really mm-hmm. blame them. So another thing this reminds me of this scene is party games. <gasps> Where are we gonna are we gonna uh, 
wrestle each other in a bucket of a tar? A kiddie pool of pitch? Yeah. <laughs> no, I thought we... I got one. I thought we'd cover ourselves... There might ourselves, still be some kids in it. I thought we'd cover Just, ourselves in grime and slap each other for a while. <laughs> Isn't that what we do every week? Metaphorically, yes. Physically, no. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> oh, I'm ready for a sad lib. Oh, crap. I have to remember parts of speech. Yes, you do. I need to make you a little chart. Oh. Can I have an, a noun that's like an idea or a concept noun? Schadenfreude. Group or category of people? Claims adjusters. Mm. Verb transitive. God! Uh, pass. You don't grammar. I don't grammar. Okay, so transitive verb drive. Uh, body part. Elbow. Verb intransitive. Uh, Dodge that bullet. <laughs> <laughs> Ponder. Ponder. Animal. Capybara. Oh. Body part. Nostril. Another body part. Outer ear. A funny noise. <laughs> <laughs> Noun. Cadillac. Body part. You'll notice um, as we get further down in hell, body parts turn up more in sad libs. Mm. Meniscus. Animal. Animal. Leopard. Verb intransitive. Man, I played my cards right here. Wonder. Funny noise. Auga. Verb transitive. Shove. A body part. Thyroid. Ugh. A liquid. Mummy juice. <laughs> <laughs> An animal. Coyote. Noun. Ugh. As she gazes frantically around Teeth. the room, looking Teeth. for something to, <laughs> to strike her fancy. A jamin. Jamin. No, please don't. Verb intransitive. Telecommute. Funny noise. <laughs> hubba hubba. <laughs> <clears throat> I mean, hubba hubba. Verb transitive. <laughs> Damn. That works. Body part. Septum. Verb transitive. Pass. Okay. Verb intransitive. Pass. No. So, <laughs> so do I have to do a verb transitive or a verb intransitive? No, I use the word pass. Oh, oh, oh gotcha. okay. genius. We should leave that part in. I see what you did there. Um, regret. Adjective. Blank. Adjective. Blank. Blank. Little doll. I, that, okay. th that describes my brain right now on adjectives. Okay, so this is describing the scene where the demons, who have very silly names, are plunging people into the pitch. Okay. So it's a complicated image, so bear with. Thus, sometimes, to alleviate his schadenfreude, one of the claims adjusters would display his elbow, <laughs> and in less time, and in less time drive it than it ponders as on the brink of slurm in a ditch... The copybearers stand only with their nostrils out, <laughs> so that they hide their outer ear and other bulk. So upon every side the claims adjusters stood, but as ever as Woof came near them, thus underneath the catalog they withdrew, I saw, and still my meniscus doth shudder at it. One waiting thus, even as it comes to pass, one leopard remains, and down another wonders, and Auga, who shoves him... <laughs> grappled him by his thyroid smeared with mummy juice and drew him up so that he seemed a coyote. I knew before the teeth of all of them, so I had noted them when they were telecommuting. And when they called each other, listened how, oh, hubba hubba, see that thou doth damn thy septum upon him so that thou mayest pass him. Regret altogether the blank ones. Grabbed him by his thyroid. 
What a like that's a pro wrestling move right there. The thyroid that grapple. <laughs> Dear listeners, if you've enjoyed this, thank you for joining it with us. And we do ask you to share us with your friends and consider supporting us on Patreon or join us on Discord. You can find links to both of those in our webpage, dispatch.ist. And until next week, we'll see you in the Malboge. Yay! I'm going in now! Splut! Sploosh! Hubba hubba! Slurm! This podcast is copyright 2021 by The Dispatchist and its Creative Commons. You're welcome to reuse with attribution. Look for us on your favorite podcast app. Say hi to us on Twitter or Gmail at The Dispatchist, no spaces. Check out our website, dispatch.ist, for more episodes, show notes, and a variety of hellish resources.